Hi, I'm Rain Hendricks. Uh, this is episode 38 of Shopping is Hard, Let's Do Math. And I am here with the wonderful Jessica Kerr. Good morning, Rain. Shopping is hard, but this show is called Greater Than Code. And I am thrilled to be here today with Coraline Ada Emke. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we have an amazing guest with us today. And I know I say that every time, but this time I really, really mean it. We have Dr. Eugenia Chang who is a scientist in residence at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. She won tenure in pure mathematics at the University of Sheffield in the UK, where she is now honorary fellow. She's previously taught at the universities of Cambridge, Chicago, and Nice, and holds a PhD in pure mathematics from the University of Cambridge. Alongside her research in category theory and undergraduate teaching, her aim is to rid the world of mass phobia. Her first popular math book, How to Bake Pie, was published by Basic Books in 2015 to widespread acclaim, including from the New York Times, National Geographic, Scientific American, and she was interviewed around the world, including on the BBC, NPR, and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And I have to confess, I watched that clip today. Eugenia was an early pioneer of math on YouTube, and her video has been viewed over a million times to date. Her next popular math book, Beyond Infinity, will be published this year. Eugenia is also a math columnist for the Wall Street Journal, a concert pianist, and founder of the Leaders Tube. So, Eugenia, it sounds like you're a big slacker. Yeah, I'm really lazy. I never do anything. Your work with math has gotten you some attention, some slight attention of some mm -hmm. form. What got you interested in math at the beginning? Were, were you one of those kids who was just like really, really into math your whole life or... I was really into lots of things my whole life. And it wasn't like I just sat around doing math the entire time. I was not the kind of kid who just read math books. But my mother really got me into thinking cool things. And she showed me the coolest stuff about math just as part of life the whole time. It wasn't like, oh, now we're going to sit down and do math and then we're going to go and play. It was just always there. And so I never thought of math as something separate. I just always had this natural assumption that it was really fun and exciting and it had the most fantastic ideas in it. And then I went to school and school wasn't very interesting. And I basically didn't find anything in school particularly interesting, especially not the math. And so I understand why many people can't stand math because of the lessons that they had at school. But because my mother showed me these really fun, interesting things, I held out hope all the way through that there was something better waiting for me at the end. And indeed, there was. And when I finally got to start doing research, I discovered the stuff that I had been waiting for all along. There was some of it when I was an undergraduate, and there were little bits of it all the way along. But really, I found at home when I got to make my own things up. And I think it's sad that it took all those years through the drudgery of school and tests and homework before I was allowed to make my own things up. And I think that that puts a lot of people off math. And for people who like making their own things up, it sends them into other things like music or art or cooking or maybe coding or something where you do get to make your own things. So that's the message that I've decided to try and give everyone else, that it's not necessarily just that thing you do at school where you have to answer questions, get the right answer. You also get to play and experiment and create. I have to confess that I was one of those kids that struggled with math in school. To challenge myself, my senior year, I took an AP calculus course, and it was the only B I ever got, um, mm. which was devastating and cost mm. me the valedictorian position. Um, oh, this is a really but, uh, tragic story. <laughs> I did find that it got easier 
when I started taking physics classes because suddenly I had a practical application for the math. So the pure theory wasn't doing it for me and it wasn't sticking and I struggled with it a lot. But when I had something practical that I could apply it to, then everything started clicking a little bit more. Do you find that to be a common experience? I had the opposite experience. And I think that for many people, it is about practical applications. But the trouble with that is that many people aren't interested in the types of practical applications that get presented. And so for people who are maybe more like artists, and I see artists all the time now because I teach them at the School of the Art Institute, they also aren't interested in physics applications and they're not really interested in engineering applications and they're definitely not interested in business and finance applications. So for those people, there's something else which I'm showing, which is that it's about understanding how things work and it's about showing what the deep structure is inside thought processes and I want to reach those people because I feel that they're the ones who are the most left out at the moment because it's true that applications do help a lot of people but they don't help me to like math and so I you know, on the one hand, maybe I am an entirely unique person, but I doubt it. I expect if that didn't, doesn't help interest me, maybe there are a whole load of other people who also aren't necessarily interested by direct applications, but rather in more broad thought based ideological applications where it's about understanding how to use your brain really well, rather than how to use the theory to solve this particular problem. Do you want to give an example of that? Well, one surprising example of that is how I understood my life and therefore quit my job. And that I really felt was something that I thought about mathematically by focusing really carefully on things that are relevant and things that aren't relevant and following chains of causation. I did an analysis of it, of my life. And it was at New Year of 2000. 13. So the beginning of 2013, I sat down and I wrote a list of everything that I think I'm good at. And I wrote a list of everything that makes me happy. And then I compared that with what my current life consisted of. And I just didn't feel like it used enough of the things that I think I'm good at. And I really believe in life. It's for me, it's important to find all the things you're good at and figure out how to use them in combination in the best way you can to contribute to the world in some way that you want to. And so I I sort of axiomatized myself, basically, because I'm a mathematician and I like systems where you boil everything down to some very basic principles and you see how everything else follows from those principles. So I axiomatized myself. I found the things that I think I'm good at and I tried to figure out how I could get a life that used more of those things. And I realized that a normal academic job as a professor in a normal academic university was just probably not going to do it. And I had tried for a number of years because I really wanted to contribute to the education system in England that had given me everything that I have, basically. And it just wasn't doing it. And so I thought about what I would do. I saw various constraints. And so I just tried changing a few constraints to see what would happen, which is a very mathematical thing to do, where you look at a situation and then you try generalizing it by saying, well, what if I just relaxed this rule? What kind of world would I create without that rule? Which doesn't mean that you can, because in real life, you can't just get rid of laws. But it helps you to understand what's making things function in the world that you have. If you imagine getting rid of some law and saying what would happen, then you can think about it. It's like that sometimes I go, what would I do if I had tons of money? 
I can't just have tons of money, but imagining a fantasy world in which I have tons of money helps me understand what my real desires are. And I think that that's a mathematical process. It, the thought process comes from the idea of abstraction, where in math, you take the real world, you forget some ideas, you move into the abstract world of ideals, and then you think about what, how, what works in that world without the details, and that helps you understand the world that's got the details in it. And so I realized that if there were no such thing as countries and borders and visas and passports, I realized I would simply move to Chicago and figure something out. And so I realized that what I, the, the big hindrance was just that I needed a visa. So I then had to think about how to get a visa. And so that's how I started at the process of quitting my tenure job and becoming essentially freelance and living in Chicago, my best life. Wow. That's beautiful. So in the relaxation of constraints, you're able to see like kind of over the wall, over the wall of those barriers mm -hmm. that you didn't let yourself think past otherwise. Yeah, I love that image because it's like you see through the wall, so you see what's on the other side, and then you can focus on how to get over that wall. Or you get an overview of the wall, so you can see maybe where the lowest point is or where would be the best place to construct a way of getting over it. Yeah, I, I love that analogy, and it reminds me of uh, there was a time where I was reading a bunch of computer science papers to try to figure out what was going on uh, in this world. Mm -hmm. And... I was really struggling to make my way through these papers. Um, they were just in front of me and they were a huge challenge. I don't have a, a formal background. Uh, so they were, they were this huge edifice that I was trying to climb. And a friend of mine who uh, comes from a similar background but has been very successful said, you have to pick a fight with the paper. You have to look at its assumptions and the sort of chains of logic that follow from them and say, what if this one was different? Why is this one necessary for their result? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And doing that gave me the motivation and sort of the path through this this forest. Mm -hmm. And what I realized later is that this applies to basically every challenge that I've yeah. faced in my life. Mm -hmm. And that is a great way of approaching math in a way that makes it more personal. Because the trouble with math is often that when you're studying it, it feels like a bunch of rules that have simply been imposed on you and you have to follow them. But actually, if you think about why those rules are there, then you can just imagine one of them going away and seeing what happens. And that helps you understand the system better. And it also makes you feel like you have some agency in it. One of the things I love is you said there are two possible outcomes. Either you understand the paper or you have a new result. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a kind of related thing to that where sometimes I read a paper when I'm trying to go to sleep on the plane, for example, and I think, well, there are two possible outcomes. Either I'll I'll understand a paper or I'll get some sleep. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I love the way you talk about mathematics as being a, a creative process and not just a rote. Um, I'm reminded of um, Paul Lockhart's uh, Mathematician's Lament. Mm-hmm where uh, the, one of the quotes I love from that is that mathematics is the music of reason, mm. which which really speaks to me. And it seems like if you wanted to build a system that was designed to make people hate mathematics, it would look a lot like our current education yeah, system. I think you're right. I think we've done a really good job of building, uh, really getting people to hate math. And sometimes I, I fantasize about the fact that if we simply stopped teaching any math at all, we would probably achieve more than we're doing now because at the moment we're achieving negative. So if we just didn't do it, we'd achieve zero. And because we know some math, we know that zero is more than a negative number. <laughs> <laughs>
I thought I hated math until I read Good Election Back by Douglas Hofstadter. Uh, uh-huh. And that, that sparked so much in me. I saw for the first time the relationship between math and music. I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. I saw for the first time the relationship between math and models of human intelligence, mm-hmm. um, which sparked my work in AI, which I've been doing oh. for 20 years now. And, um, it just, it opened my eyes so much. And I, I wished that that book had been my textbook instead of the boring calculus mm-hmm. book that I actually had in my high school. I know. And the calculus altogether is a, such a strange thing to teach people in high school. I cannot figure it out. It's definitely, dare I say it, it's very American. I don't think other countries do that. And it's such a weird introduction to difficult mathematics because it's so... The structure of it is not, I think, exactly illuminating. And so it puts off a lot of people who don't just want answers. They want to understand. And for me, there's a real difference between a proof and an illumination because a proof is a step-by-step series of logical justifications. But an illumination is sheds light on why something works. And, and a calculus proofs, if you even get to them, don't really shed light on what's going on. They're kind of a trick to say, well, I'm just going to, I can't shed light on it. So I'm just going to do this little trick and ping, I get to the other side. Huh? And I think that that is a strange introduction to the beautiful world of logical reasoning. If you present it in another way, then it's a really amazing introduction because it's like a way of getting around the problem of infinity that is really difficult to get around, but it's never presented like that, or rarely anyway. I mean, when I've taught it, I've presented it like that. But usually it's some kind of weird set of manipulations and ton, you just learn how to do tons of manipulations for no apparent reason. And in the UK, where I'm from, there isn't an obsession with teaching calculus. In fact, we don't teach calculus until quite high up in an undergraduate math degree. And so I found it very surprising when I moved here for the first time and discovered that Everybody does calculus, and that's the thing that you do if you're good at math. You do calculus, and that when you get to university, the thing you have to do is you do calculus. And I was talking to another European person about this, saying, do you understand why there's all this focus on calculus? And he said to me, what I've learned about this country, he said, he was just maybe a tiny bit cynical, he said, what I've learned about this country is if you can't understand why something's going, ask yourself where the money is coming from. So I thought about it, and I thought, oh, yes, calculus textbooks. They make people <laughs> tons of money. They are really heavy. They, they're really heavy and expensive. And they make another edition every two years so that everyone has to buy a new one. And Since math you, changes so quickly. Right, exactly. And if you think about the number of people who are forced to buy those textbooks, I read an article about one of the calculus textbook authors who died recently. And apparently he's very famous around here, but I don't know many calculus textbooks. And he was so rich from calculus textbooks, that he built himself something like an $8 million house with its own concert hall in it. And the reason that I read an article about this house, it was ostensibly an architecture article, and the house had calculus principles in it, and he loved music, so he built this concert hall. That, And I just looked at it, and I thought, wow, maybe I should be writing calculus textbooks. And then I remembered that I'm not primarily driven by money, and that's why I'm not writing calculus textbooks. There are obscure subjects that I'm interested in where the only way to learn about them is to either read a bunch of papers, which is very undirected, and most of them are behind paywalls, Mm -hmm. or to buy an obscure textbook, and they cost $400 on Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. So I think that I 
love the idea of somehow trying to break the stranglehold that the publishing houses have on those textbooks. But can you imagine the amount of pushback there would be if we tried to say, actually, no, just, we're just not going to teach calculus anymore. We get pushback <laughs> trying to put evolution in textbooks. So I don't think you're going to change the textbook publishing world anytime soon. It is changing. I mean, my 12-year-old doesn't have a lot of textbooks, and she does have a lot of online material that she uses. Right. And I love that, the fact that with the internet, I mean, there are all sorts of problems with the internet, but instead of focusing on the problems of the internet, let's remind ourselves of the great things about the internet and the amount of information that can be shared without having to go through those old gatekeepers. And of course, the old gatekeepers want to keep things the way that benefits them. But guess what? We don't have to go through them anymore. And that's why I started making videos on YouTube, because suddenly I had always wanted, I had always dreamt of making a textbook for category theory, which is my research subject. And the thing about category theory is that it involves a lot of visual diagrammatic reasoning. And it's very difficult to show that statically in a book, because you have to see how the diagrams grow as you're thinking. So I always fantasized about writing a textbook that had a DVD at the back, that was like those language textbooks where you have a DVD of native speakers speaking it. And I really wanted to just include a DVD so that that everyone could watch the kind of the lectures with the textbook to see the diagrams growing. But back in those days, you know, millions of years ago when we were young, that it was really expensive to make DVD. You'd have to get a video team or something. And then someone invented YouTube and webcams and suddenly it became possible to just point a webcam at a board and make a video and then just shove it on the internet and everyone could see it. And I just had this amazing vision that everybody would have access to me teaching category theory. Because the thing is, at the time, hardly anyone was actually teaching it. And so, as you say, loads of people were stuck with trying to learn it from textbooks. And the only textbook at the time was Categories for the Working Mathematician, which is so dry and I don't know how anyone ever managed to learn category theory. I can tell you what I did. Mm-hmm. I would read a paragraph of McLean, and then I would mm-hmm. read five pages of Audi. Oh, right. And then I would but... then I would read the chapter of conceptual mathematics that mm-hmm. would explain that to me. Mm-hmm. And so I would work paragraph through paragraph. Each paragraph in McLean would be a forcing function that would require me to spend like a week <laughs> reading other sources yeah, to figure right. out. What that right. paragraph and the thing is that when I started making the YouTube videos, there weren't that many other sources. So Audi, I can't remember when Conceptual Mathematics was written, but Audi's book was years away from being written yet, I think, anyway, or maybe just a little bit away from it. But certainly I had, I had met, because I did my PhD in Cambridge, there was a category theory course there. And then I went off into the world and met other people who had not had access to that. And I saw that because they had learnt category theory from McLean, they had a, I won't say slightly strange view, but they, they could do lots of technicality without knowing quite what the point was. And I think. Did they have the proof, but not the illumination? Exactly. Thank you. They had the proof, but not the illumination. I think that is how so much of math is taught at all levels that people are trained to do manipulations and computations and to get answers that consist of a number here or a number there. But without the illumination, it doesn't make that much sense to them. Plus, it means that they're not able to see why math is wonderful. They just see it as a series of manipulations. And this happens at every level. So it happens with high school math. It happens with elementary school math. It happens with high school math and everybody. It happens with math 
for scientists. Some people, some scientists I've met, many of them actually, especially engineers, think of math as just something to help them answer their questions. They don't see why research in it has any point. But then it happens even inside math. And so category theory is like the math of math. And so it does for math what math does for the rest of the world in a way. But then some mathematicians don't see the point of that. And they think of category theory as just some manipulations that don't really have a point. Or they think that you only do it if you need to reach a particular answer rather than doing it in order to illuminate what is going on in mathematics. And the thing that I always want to do with my brain most is illuminate what is going on just in anything, the world, math, my kitchen, music, anything. Eugenie, you said that category theory does for math what math does for everything else. And you mentioned earlier that what math does for everything else is explain how the world works. Mm -hmm. So does category theory explain how math works? I think it does, at least certain aspects of it. So it's important, I think, to remember that math doesn't explain how everything about the world works. What it does is it illuminates certain aspects of it. Anything that makes a connection between something and something else is a potential place where math can help. Because it's really about looking at two different situations and saying, what do these two situations have in common? And that part that they have in common is an abstract thing. And so I think that there are times when we're thinking, for example, if we think about how we should treat minorities, for example, then you can think about how we treat one kind of minority. And then we can think about whether that would be appropriate if we did something similar to another minority that maybe we're more used to treating equally. So, for example, sometimes people say really stupid stuff about, for example, gay people. And then people sometimes try, people try and illuminate that how stupid it is what they've said by replacing that with imagining that they've said that about African Americans. And then maybe they realize that that sounds really stupid if you said it about African Americans and offensive and dumb. And then you go, well, see, then why are you saying it about this other minority when you wouldn't say it about this minority? And that process is a process of analogy between two different situations. So you've moved into an abstract world. Instead of talking about a specific minority, you're talking about the concept of minorities and how we should treat them. And that is kind of mathematical and that's making an analogy between two different situations and finding what they have in common and that's what category theory does for mathematics it says i'm looking at this situation where something seems to be happening kind of freely without constraint and i'm looking at this other situation where there's also something happening freely without constraint ah oh, the concept of things happening freely without constraint is therefore something these two different mathematical situations have in common. So that's a more abstract piece of mathematics. And then category theory will produce a theory of things operating freely without constraint. And then we can put that back into algebras working freely without constraint, or topological spaces working freely without constraint, or logical systems working freely without constraint, having made the theory that's at a different level. My introduction to category theory came from Hofstadter's latest book, um, Analogy, the Fuel and Fire of Thinking. And, mm -hmm. um, I tried to do some research into category theory and found it impossible to find a starting point, but I did finally find, um, a series of lectures that someone had done. And one of the ideas that came 
I think from the lectures in part and in part from my own sort of realization and as an expert in category theory, I'm taking advantage of your expertise here. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that for like from the beginning of rational scientific thought, the approach that people were taking starting early on, probably with the Greek philosophers, was the idea of breaking things down into small problems, mm-hmm. solving small problems and composing a larger solution from them. Yes. And it struck me that category theory does the opposite of that. It doesn't look at the details. It blurs the details and looks at larger systems and the way that larger systems can be compared to each other. So instead of the atomization that we saw in scientific research, and I think in mathematics for a long time, it seems to be favoring the abstract over the concrete. You think that's an accurate sort of perception of what's going on with category theory? I think that's a really interesting observation, but I think that that's two different dimensions, actually. I think that there's one thing which is splitting things up into small parts, decomposing them into small parts, and fitting the parts together. And there's another which is abstraction, which is moving levels. I don't think it's about sticking things together to make bigger things. I think it's about, as you say, ignoring details so you get some kind of zoomed out picture. And so I might call it the bigger picture, but I don't mean that in the sense of sticking small pictures together. I mean it in the sense of overview. And you can do both at the same time. So within category theory, there's still a big focus on decomposing things into small parts, understanding the small parts, and then working out how those small parts fit together. And then uh, you can de-abstractify, as it were, those small parts back to the small parts as well. I think one good analogy for this is what happens in Google Maps when you zoom out. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't show the the streets anymore. They show the highways and things like oh, that. Oh, yeah, I think that's a great analogy because when you zoom out on Google Maps, it still is some small pieces stuck together. You just see more things at once because you've zoomed out, but with less detail. You could still deconstruct it into small bits stuck together. And then when you zoom in, it's still also small bits stuck together. So I think it's two different points of view on how to understand a problem further. But I think that you're right that if you start at the very zoomed in level, then breaking it into small parts and zooming out are two different things. But you can also, I don't think they're opposites. I think they're orthogonal. So um, someone who's really good at category theory will do both to understand the problem space? Yes. I mean, I do that all the time. So when I, what I will do and what I do do in my research is that I zoom out to try and find the essential structure. But then after I've started thinking about the essential structure, I will break down the essential structure into small parts to try and understand the parts separately before um, understanding how they fit together and then understanding the the relationship between the small parts, the fitting together and the zooming back in again. Is there a mechanism for detecting which details when you're at the zoomed in level matter? And I'm thinking here of like work that I did with categorization using a random forest algorithm to Mm -hmm. determine like what traits decisions can be made on and which ones they could not Mm -hmm. be made on. Mm -hmm. Is there a mechanism like that that you engage in? That's such an interesting question because thinking about it, that's something that I have to do all the time. And it's really hard because it's not an automatic process. It's not an algorithmic process at all. When you're figuring out what's important, that's one of the hardest parts. And I think it's something that is sometimes done 
quite badly, which is why some sometimes people think of they call it abstract nonsense because abstraction when it's done just for the sake of abstraction kind of is pointless. Whereas abstraction when it's done for the purpose of illuminating what the point really is, is really amazing. But there isn't a formula for how to figure out what's really important. And I ooh, think ooh, that you mentioned would, one earlier. Mm, I did try changing. Yeah. Yeah. You said oh, yeah. change the rule and see what happens. Yes, thank you. I did. And that is one way of doing it. So you can try changing something and seeing if it affects it. So when you're making a good analogy, and this happens all the time, when I'm having an argument with someone and I'm trying to be really logical, I will often try and find an analogy. If I think there's something absurd about their argument, I will try to find an analogous situation that highlights how absurd their argument is by making it really absurd in another situation. And to find a good analogy, what I do is I retreat into the same part of my brain that does mathematics, I think. And I play around and I try and feel for what is really making the absurdity happen. And so I try ignoring some details of the situation or changing some details to see whether that absurdity still happens. If I find what I think is a really good analogy, usually the person will go, but that's different. And I go, yes, of course it's different. It's an analogy. That's the whole point of an analogy. It's different. But the crucial <laughs> part is the same. And so then you have to convince someone that what's crucial about the situation has remained the same, even though some surface details have changed. But then sometimes people make analogies because they, they think that they're making a really good analogy, but I think they've changed a crucial aspect of it. So they haven't actually illuminated the situation. They've completely changed the situation. But it's very subtle. And I think... That is a fascinating aspect of how abstraction works and the nuances in our in our amazing human brains. It's interesting you said you went to a mathematical place to form analogies. One of the things that Hofstadter talked about in his book is focuses on analogies, and he mm -hmm. talked about the mysterious process by which our brains are categorizing things in such a way that we can make analogies. Mm -hmm. One of the examples he gave was a family who took their son to the Grand Canyon and the mother and father are looking out at the sweeping vista of the Grand Canyon before them. And they say to their son, I forget his name, like Chris, isn't this really beautiful? And they look over and Chris is fascinated with some ants crawling around on the ground. So Chris grows up and he ends up taking a, a vacation, taking his parents with him to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And um, he discovers that in Egypt, glass soda bottles are prevalent and there are bottle caps everywhere. So he starts, he decides to start a collection of bottle caps. And, um, they're going to the temple at Karnak uh -huh. and he sees a bottle cap that he hasn't seen before on the ground. And he makes a big deal of this bottle cap while he's standing in front of the temple of Karnak. Uh -huh. And his father's like, Oh, that's exactly like when. Uh -huh. So it's, it's really mysterious how our brains can categorize things with enough abstraction that we can even say, this situation is analogous to that other situation. Yeah. And I think, I think that our brains are amazingly naturally wired or something to abstraction, even though a lot of people go, Oh, I, I, I can't, I can't do abstract math. I was, I was fine with math until the numbers turned into letters. That's too abstract. And the thing is that numbers are already so abstract because numbers aren't things. Numbers are analogies between groups of objects. 
So you go, here's three books and there's three cookies and three bananas. What do those things have in common? It's the number three. It's the concept of three. What is three? When you're teaching it to small children, you have to show them three of this thing and three of that thing and three of that thing. And then you can't tell them what three is. At some point, they have to make a leap and understand that three is a thing that those groups of objects have in common. And there's a story I tell in my first book, which I love, which is about a mother who I used to help in a uh, elementary school in England. I did it for years. And there was this one mother who also helped there. And she was complaining. She said, all, all my, my, she had a three-year-old son. She said, his friends, mothers, they all say, oh, my child can count to 20. Oh, my child can count to 30. And she said, my son can count to three, but he knows what three is. And I thought this was <laughs> great because, because when you say that a child can count to 10, mostly you just mean that they can recite the words one to 10, which is a start. But that's not what numbers are. Numbers are amazing concepts. And somehow we have brains that can do that. And, you know, language is already an abstraction from objects. Because when we say cat, we kind of know that cat is referring to some fluffy animal with four legs and, and things. And we are able to hold that abstract thing in our brain and know that it's referring to various concrete things. The fact that we can do language, I think, is already a sign that we have innate powers of abstraction inside us and i can tell you that trying to model that in code is so difficult mm-hmm. um i have my ai side project and trying to model things in such a way that you can concretely refer to them using linguistic terms yeah. but also understand how they relate to each other in, in a more abstract way mm-hmm. it's very very difficult and um mm-hmm. When I learned that Leibniz was an alchemist, in addition to being a natural philosopher, Mm. that gave me some courage. And I actually started exploring different classification systems from different areas of human endeavor, including Kabbalah, where, you know, people have been working on the problem of classification and categorization for thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't all mathematicians and scientists doing it. Yeah. And I think classification is it's so interesting because we humans seem to be desperate to classify things all the time. And really, in order to group things together so that there we don't have to process so many things in our head. And I think that that's it sort of comes from, I'd like to say laziness, but in a way it's trying to be efficient, trying to have, there's so much data in the world around us that we have to process that if we temporarily consider some of those things to be the same, then there's just less data to process. And so I think that's what analogy is doing in a way. And I love the insight that we can get from trying to figure out how to get a computer to do a thing that we do, because then we start realizing how weird it is that our brains can do these things. And there's that the classic example of how to get computers to recognize handwriting because there are all these things that we recognize as being the letter a sort of spontaneously but they're so different physically and they're how that we can even so they're different topologically i mean we can make an a with a gap in it and we can still know it's a letter a it's just amazing when we realize that somehow we can a the letter a is already abstract but even more abstract than that is the fact that all these different representations of it we still recognize as being a letter a so our brains are are doing that all the time. And I think that if we couldn't do that, we would be completely overwhelmed by the amount of information that we have to process all the time. And I think that the process of becoming an adult, one of the things that we have to learn to do is to do that more because we're trying to process more and more information all the time. And so children 
can get really upset about the difference between that cookie and that cookie because they can see how different this cookie is from that cookie. And if you give them that one <laughs> instead of that one, they'll scream. And then we sort of grow up and, and relax a bit and realize that they're basically the same, those two cookies. They're both chocolate chip cookies. And we accept that some more things count as the same. And in a way, all what we're doing all the time is learning how to ignore details that aren't relevant. But we have to make decisions about which details are relevant in the situation and which ones aren't. I had an experience like that when I was young, when I realized when I was learning to count, apparently I had trouble saying that is two of the same thing because to me they were very distinct. Mm-hmm. So when you said three people, I was like, how can you have three of the same thing? It, mm-hmm. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's sort of like if you take, I mean, for other children, they get confused if you say, well, if you take one banana and one cookie, then can you add them together? What do you get? You still get two things, but you have to abstract further from the place that you started. And then when you do, when the numbers turn into letters, you have to abstract even further so that one plus two can become part of the same concept as six plus seven. And then when you do category theory, you abstract even further from that. And so every time you go further, some people kind of fall off or hit a ceiling because they're not comfortable with forgetting even more details. And I sort of love forgetting more and more and more details. And sometimes I think that there's two directions that human interaction is going in, where in one direction, everyone is trying to show how unique they are and how different they are and how their identity is completely different from everyone else. But on the other hand, I also, because of what I do as a mathematician and a category theorist, I love seeing how everyone has things in common and what we all have in common. And if you get abstract enough, we're all just people and we're all really the same. There's different levels of difference that you can find. And and so in a way, everyone is different or everyone is the same. And that everything else, that every other classification we make is just sort of some arbitrary decision in between those two things. For me, part of adulthood is being conscious of that, being mm-hmm. conscious of what you're grouping together and where you're drawing your lines yes, of distinction. That is so important. And one of the things that category theory does is it says that you should always be clear what context you're in right now. And you can always change context, but you shouldn't mix up contexts. So you shouldn't be in one context, but act like you're being in another. And that if you're always aware of what context you're in, then it just enables you to think more clearly about things. Eugenia, when I met you at Empire Elixir the other day, you taught me some amazing words. Would you define ingressive and congressive for people? I can, yes. It starts with the fact that I think that the words masculine and feminine are redundant and more than that, that they're actually obstructive and that it doesn't make any sense to talk about anything being masculine and feminine, except that a male person is inherently, if they call themselves male, they're masculine because that's of or pertaining to male. And I realized this because I had a narrative about my mathematical life that basically went like this. When I started as a mathematician, I didn't want to show any signs of femininity because I didn't want people to have a chance to say that I wasn't good at math because I was a woman. But then when I became established in my career and I had tenure, I felt like it was okay to show some femininity, but I only did it outside of work because I was still afraid. And then I gradually started letting it in. And then I thought, this doesn't make any sense because I am female. 
And so everything I do is feminine. And why should some aspects of a character be called feminine and some others not? As if there's something wrong with me if I don't show those aspects because I'm female, but I'm showing masculine characteristics. So I realized that what we really need is new words to talk about the actual character traits and separate them from the questions of gender. Because it's really the character traits that may or may not cause people to think about things differently. This is aside from the prejudice that people apply to people who present different genders. It's just about character traits that are actually there that are different. And so I decided that we should have new words to replace masculine and feminine. And I brainstormed with an amazing friend of mine for ages about this. And we finally came up with ingressive and congressive. So ingressive is to replace masculine and congressive is to replace feminine. And the idea is that ingressive is about kind of going into things and not being waylaid by what people think or by emotions. And congressive is about bringing people with you and bringing people together and unifying and making connections between things. And it may be that ingressive behavior is traditionally associated with men and that congressive behavior is traditionally associated with women. But I think that when you make new words, then you can realize that both men and women and all genders of people can be ingressive and congressive at different times and in different situations. And that it doesn't mean it's right or wrong for one person to be one thing or another. Because, of course, the trouble with masculinity and femininity as words is that they sound prescriptive so that it automatically sounds like women are supposed to be feminine and that, therefore, if they're described as showing masculine characteristics, then there's a, something is wrong. There's a dissonance because they're doing the thing that is associated with the other and similarly if men show feminine characteristics and that this is problematic for all genders of people there is the fact that male people then feel under pressure to do things like not show emotions and and not cry and not worry about people's feelings and then female people if they're ambitious or powerful or they express opinions or they're too strong then people say that they're being too masculine and there's something wrong with it whereas if you think about ingressive and congressive instead then you can actually think about which characteristics are good for different situations so for example i think that broadly speaking i've come to think that congressive behavior is basically better for society but that ingressive behavior is rewarded more by society because society is based on competition it's based on how you present yourself and so for things like competing for a job you have to be ingressive to put yourself forward for promotion and to talk about how great you are whereas when you're actually doing some work with people then it's really helpful to be congressive because then you bring people together you understand people and i think that mathematics is usually presented in a very ingressive way. So in high school, it's about getting the right answer. And if you're good at it, then young people are put into competitions where you have to solve as many problems as possible, as fast as possible, and score as many points as possible. And if you get it wrong, then you've kind of lost and you get a big red check mark against your work. Whereas at research level, it's congressive because it's not about getting things right and wrong. It's about understanding how things work and building structures. And I think that uh, sport is quite inherently ingressive because it's about winning and beating the other people. And I realized this when during last in the fall, I was teaching my art students as usual. And there was that thing that the Cubs won some kind of sport, I understand. <laughs> and Finally. the whole of Chicago was going nuts about it, except apparently me, 
and all my art students. And we were talking about it and they just said that they were really not interested in it. And I realized that I am not interested in winning and I'm much more interested in learning and understanding and building things together. And so not only am I not that interested in sport, I'm kind of put off by it because the whole idea of beating somebody else is something that I find really distasteful. I would much rather we all built something wonderful together. And that's why I like music. Because in music, you're not trying to beat someone else. You you all come together and you make some music together. Except, of course, even in music, the process of getting to that point is often ingressive because you have to win competitions. And you have to beat people in a competition in order to be selected to, say, go to music school. So we have all these ingressive hurdles that we put people through in order to reach things where congressive behavior would be much more beneficial. And I think that when I think about it like that, I can think differently about my interactions with other people. And I can think differently about my interactions with myself, actually. And the fact that I am motivated by helping people, I'm not motivated by winning things. So if I try to motivate myself with reward, it doesn't work. If I motivate myself instead with what I can do to help people, then it does work. And I also realize that so many of my most frustrating interactions with other people come because they are being very ingressive. And the behavior I have learned by being in the world and wanting to be successful is I have learned to basically fake ingressive characteristics because I know that I see that that's what's rewarded. So I have learned in the process of being a mathematician and being an academic, I have learned how to be ingressive right back at people when they're being ingressive. And what happens when I do that is I'm very good at it. And then I go home and I hate myself because I don't want to be like that. And that's one of the reasons I quit my job because I discovered that I didn't have the terminology to say this at the time. But now I do. I realize in retrospect that what was happening was that I had to be ingressive in order to be successful. I felt I had to be ingressive to be successful. I didn't like it. And what I've realized now is that you don't have to be ingressive in order to be successful. There are ways to be congressive and deal with ingressive behavior. It's just hard and I'm figuring them out as I go along. And what I hope is that we can gradually get in more in touch with our congressive side and find a way of diffusing ingressive behavior so that congressive behavior can be more valued. Because the trouble is that ingressive behavior is kind of louder. And it's like the fact that the loud people are always the loudest. And so they're the ones who get heard. And while ingressive people are in charge of everything, they will continue to reward ingressive behavior as well. And I think that that is one of the big reasons why women are underrepresented in politics, in management, in academia, and dare I say it, also in crime. Because I suspect that ingressive behavior is also related to really, really being focused on winning and not really caring about losing. And that's why ingressive people, I think, like playing sport, because the idea of winning is really fantastic. And people say sport teaches you to be a good loser. And that's a general assumption that that's a good thing. But I think it's kind of dangerous if taken too far, because if you if you don't mind losing, then you take risks where it doesn't you because you don't care about the possibility of failure. And people who take big risks will also do things like commit crimes because the idea of going, being arrested and going to prison doesn't put them off. The idea or of the start businesses. Money, yeah, or start businesses or tell lies 
because the idea of it is that they could succeed and they don't really mind if they're found out. But for me, this also includes the idea of being wrong because if somebody shows me that I'm wrong and gloats over it, that's the crucial thing. I don't mind if someone shows me I'm wrong and then we all learn something together. That's a congressive thing. But if an argument is about someone trying to beat me by showing that I'm wrong and they're right, I, I hate losing. And that's the only reason that I don't like being wrong. And I think that this is related to why people get put off math. Because at a certain point, math becomes about being right and wrong. And some people don't like being wrong and they feel stupid. And so they go away to something that's more obviously congressive. But the ingressive people aren't put off by being wrong. They're really spurred on by the joy of being right. And that, I think, means that there is an accidental filter that puts off congressive people and keeps ingressive people in. And so I think this could lead to why women are still underrepresented in math. And I think that we can change that by presenting math in a congressive way early on instead of an ingressive way. And there are so many mathematical outreach activities that I look at them and go, well, that's really ingressive. And there are ways that you could turn it into something congressive. But, you know, if you said that, about boys and girls instead of ingressive and congressive, you would sound ridiculous because then you would end up saying, oh, this outreach activity appeals to boys and not girls. That Doesn't that sound stupid? Whereas if you it may say be true. appeals to ingressive people rather than congressive people, but if you talk about the activities that appeal to boys instead of girls, then you end up with stupid things like pink Lego. <laughs> I think you didn't mention tech specifically, but thinking about things in terms of ingressive and congressive behavior makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I just went through an interview process and interviews definitely reward you for being aggressive. Yes. Even so-called pairing exercises, there's a power imbalance mm -hmm. and you are not truly working together to solve a problem. What you're actually trying to do is demonstrate your ability and that is competitive mm -hmm. and you get a reward for being good at interviewing. You get a job. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the companies I worked for, I was one of two remote employees, so I was already at a disadvantage because this company was not very remote friendly, and I was one of only two women on the team, and the team had this approach of strong opinions loosely held, mm -hmm. which led to lots and lots and lots of argumentation. Argumentation was how decisions were made. And the two of us, first of all, were not able to get the same level of like body language cues mm -hmm. and so on that the people physically present were able to do. And we were not comfortable interrupting and we were not comfortable shouting and we were excluded from those conversations. Mm -hmm. And I actually got dinged in a review for not participating in discussions enough. And I was like, that is not my communication style. I cannot possibly be successful in this role. And I ended up moving mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. Well, there are so many things to respond to about that. One is about interrupting, which I think is really interesting. I heard a segment on NPR the other day about, it was the usual thing about how men tend to interrupt women a lot. And someone called in and said, oh, well, if, uh, if someone interrupts me, I just say, I'm still speaking, actually. And I was thinking about it. And I thought, I don't have too much trouble with people interrupting me because if they do, then I can ask them to, to say that I'm still speaking. But what I have noticed is that sometimes men won't let me interrupt them, but they will let men interrupt them. And so then if there's a group of men who all want to speak, I can't get a word in because they will only allow interruptions from men. And so if I wait for them to finish speaking, it never happens because they only stop speaking when they're interrupted by a male person. And 
I hadn't thought of it quite like that before, but I think in a way interrupting is very ingressive. And a more congressive approach is to hear everybody and to take everyone into account and not be trying to show how clever you are. And I think that it is very ingressive to want to demonstrate how clever you are all the time. Whereas I've realized that what I really want to do is to help other people understand things. And so there are two kinds of argument. Well, there are lots of kinds of argument, but there are ingressive arguments where everyone is trying to win. And the way you win is by showing that you're cleverer than the other person and that they're wrong. Whereas I really like congressive arguments where the aim is to understand something. And then it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong, because whatever happens, you've learned something and you've understood it. And I have realized that I am so much more congressive than I thought, because I had been trying to emulate ingressive behavior for such a long time. And I think a lot of the writing about how women can be successful is about teaching them how to be ingressive so that they can compete with men. And that works for some people. And I've met plenty of really ingressive women who've become successful like that and who are proud of themselves for having done it. But I think there's another way, which is to find ways of congressively dealing with ingressive behavior. And I fantasize, and this is a kind of abstract dream again, where I fantasize about not an all-women institution, because if you, I've, I've worked in all-women institutions, and all that happens is that there are ingressive and congressive women, and the ingressive women take control, and that's that. What I fantasize about is an all-congressive institution where everyone is chosen because they're congressive and everyone works together congressively and all the the styles of working are congressive. I'm not quite sure what it would be like because it's so far from things that, that I know, but I've tried to set some things up, small microcosms like that for myself. So, for example, any class I teach is very, very congressive. I try to make it explicitly congressive so that it's all about understanding things. And I say to my students, there are two types of question. There's the type where you're trying to show how clever you are, and there's the type where you're trying to understand something. And I will not accept the first type, and I will accept all of the second type. So it doesn't matter. You don't need to think your question is stupid. If you're trying to understand something, it's valid. And if you're trying to show how clever you are, it's not valid. And I won't have that kind of question. And the other really congressive environment I've set up is the Liederstube, my music salon, where we share music. And I really like to think of it as sharing music rather than performing it, because performing is kind of ingressive. And there's a big risk of failure where it might go wrong. Whereas when we just share it, all we're trying to do is share our love of something with somebody else. And we're all doing it together. So we're not trying to be better than other people because there are so many performance situations where if you have five people performing in a row, then they're all trying to be better than the others to show how good they are. No, we're just all doing it together to share something that we love. And it's not about judging how good someone is. It's about doing something together. Idealistically, I think that if we, I would love to do more, to start, see more formal research into psychological aspects of this and what happens with these characteristics in education, in business, in politics, in human interaction. Um, I think that I can see how self-help can run along these lines where if ingressive behavior is coming at you, you find ways of diffusing it, but also that to think about when ingressive behavior is useful. I can think of a very, very small number of situations. I think that ingressive behavior is better for people's selves 
So if you are aggressive, then it means that you will not be so upset by things going wrong or people being horrible to you and things like that. And there's that disgusting word resilience, which I really hate. And I really, I've realized I hate the idea of being resilient because I think that resilience is aggressive. And to me, it gives me the image of bad things happening to you and you don't even care because you're sort of oblivious. And I know that resilience is thought of as in a common sense way of being really great, but I prefer to think of transformation. I don't want to be resilient to bad stuff. I want to be able to take bad stuff in and transform it into something good, which I think is completely different from resilience. I think it's a congressive approach to dealing with things as opposed to resilience, which is like learning how to be a good loser. I don't want to learn how to be a good loser. I don't want to just accept failure and defeat. I, I think, first of all, we should get to a situation where there is no failure or defeat and that everything is a process of transforming stuff for the better. There, How idealistic do I sound? So as you've been talking about this, I have literally, figuratively, literally uh, watched a series of light bulbs go off in my brain. And this has been amazing. And, uh, I thought I'd share a couple of them that, that may be relevant and may spark some discussion. One is that if you look at this from a game theoretical perspective, in ingression wins. Uh, ingression mm -hmm. is about the success of the individual over the success of the group and conversely. But look at the frame that was just pre presented. If what you care about is the success of the individual, then caring about the success of the individual wins. So mm -hmm. I had someone mm -hmm. on Twitter telling me that capitalism is math was the quote. And I had no idea what this means, but I've figured it out now. Mm -hmm. If you set up the system so that what you care about is individual success, mm -hmm. i.e. game theory, mm -hmm. uh, at least, you know, the common, common presentation of game theory, then the agents in the system that care about individual success will always beat the mm -hmm. ones that care about group success. Yes. Um, but this is a sort of prisoner's dilemma where yes, exactly. the individuals exactly do well at the expense of the group. Yes. But then, um, in fact, in the prisoner's dilemma, the individuals don't do well either. Well, it, it, the result, yes, is that the group as a whole does worse, and so they do worse. But some of them mm -hmm. actually, actually succeed at an individual. So it's not exactly in all cases. But then, you know. Right. But, but in the, the basic... The basic prisoner's dilemma is that ingressive behavior actually causes individual loss as well as group loss, mm -hmm. and that it's congressive behavior that yeah. succeeds. Well, we're, That's we're, 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 we're all going to we're all going that. to die because of climate change. So mm -hmm. in the end, we all lose. And the other thing that I was thinking about when you talked about setting up a congressive environment mm -hmm. is that the way that you mitigate ingressive behavior is having a power structure or relationship between participants such that you can stop the ingressive behavior. Mm -hmm. If that ingressive person had, was in a position of power in that group, they couldn't be stopped mm -hmm. or stopping mm -hmm. them would be more difficult. But you are mm -hmm. both in a position of power, sort of de facto as the leader of the, you know, you know as the teacher mm -hmm. and motivated to mitigate ingressive behavior. Mm -hmm. Or you set it up so that people can't succeed individually. They need each other. I read somewhere that a team is defined as the people who can't move forward without moving forward together. Mm -hmm. And you can set that up in an organization. Mm -hmm. but I, think that I agree, but I also think that it requires maintenance. You can set up a team that way, but that team could change to be something else. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just look at our government. Right. So it, it requires both setting up that framing and maintaining it over time. And the people doing the maintaining are those who have the power to do the maintaining. 
Well, I don't, the thing that I said about about having a congressive, an entirely congressive institution, is that if all the people are congressive themselves, then that happens anyway. And so there are some right. some tiny situations. I mean, my friend Greg, who helped me come up with the words ingressive and congressive, is the most spectacularly congressive person. And whenever I'm with him, I just feel like he's one of the people I know who is explicitly more congressive than me. And it's so illuminating. And I always learn so much. And I always feel so safe in that situation. And that if there were more people like Greg, or if there were an entire environment and institution that was entirely run by people like that, you almost wouldn't need formal structures in place to make sure it carried on like that because everybody would be doing it anyway and of course yes in order to try and really transform the world we have to get more people to do it but i have a suspicion that a lot of ingressive behavior is learnt, like mine was and that maybe people aren't actually as naturally ingressive as that and that people especially little boys and especially in this country are taught to be that way because that's how men are supposed to be and that we're taught that in math class masculine Mm mm-hmm yeah, all the structures of, of when we're growing up and being educated lead towards that, together with the emphasis on sport, the emphasis on right and wrong subjects. All of those things are, you know, children develop the things that are valued because that's, like you say, if you're in a society that rewards aggressive behavior, then the aggressive behavior will succeed the most. And so people learn those behaviors. And if we can gradually unlearn them, and I have been on a really interesting journey of unlearning aggressive behavior in the last couple of years since I got this terminology. And I just, I feel like the best things I'm doing in my life at the moment are because of that. And I'm so much happier, but it's, it's like the prisoner's dilemma. It's not just individual benefit. I think I'm doing more good for the world at the same time as also being happier. And I think that's all from unlearning the ingressive behavior and getting really in touch with my congressive, natural congressive roots. And I have another friend who I talk to a lot about this, who's an executive coach, and she still really thinks that uh, being a hybrid of ingressive and congressive is better. But it's interesting because she interprets some of the things I do as being ingressive. Although what I think she's doing is she is ascribing ingressive personality to that behavior because most people who do that do it ingressively. So for example, the fact that I quit my job and just struck out by myself might appear to be ingressive because it might appear to be risk-taking and it might appear to be doing something for myself. But it was very far from it because it came from a position of going deep inside myself and going, okay, how can I help more people and myself at the same time? And it wasn't a risk at all because I did it so safely. I didn't just quit and go. Um, I took sabbatical. I had a one-year job at the University of Chicago. I wrote a book. And it wasn't until I had a promise from the School of the Art Institute that they wanted to keep me there, that I had my book was doing so well that I felt secure that I could earn money with that, that I got myself a green card so that I knew I could stay in this country. I spent three years transitioning from having a full-time academic job to being freelance. And so I think that was an extremely congressive way of doing it. She thinks that ingressive behavior is good because you step out of your comfort zone and that's how you grow and achieve more things. And I say, well, you can't claim that I haven't grown and achieved more things from my across my whole life, but I have never stepped out of my comfort zone. What I have done is I have understood my comfort zone so that I can understand how to stretch it so that I'm always inside it. I never step outside it. 
It's really interesting that you talked about succeeding in part by figuring out where your aggressive behaviors and tendencies were and kind of rooting them out, making a deliberate choice to be more congressive. And I saw a parallel with that in my own life as a transgender woman. Before I transitioned full time, I was leading kind of a double life and I was trying very hard to present masculine. I tried very hard to be a man and failed spectacularly at it. Um, mm-hmm. When I realized that I needed to transition, I decided I was pressing the big red reset button on my life and I could change whatever the hell I wanted to at the same time because the timing mm-hmm. was good. And mm-hmm. I looked at people I admired and through the lens that you've provided me now, I see that the people that I admired, they were not competitive. They were not people who cared about winning and losing. They were people who cared about other people. And mm-hmm. I made a deliberate effort to try to reshape myself into mm-hmm. a person like that. And for me personally, I have been exponentially more successful and more impactful since I took on or normalized the congressive behaviors and tendencies that I had myself that I had Mm -hmm. repressed for Mm -hmm. all those years. Mm -hmm. That is an amazing insight. And I have tingles going up and down my spine that you shared that through the lens of these words that I've come up with, because I really believe that when you have words for things, you can think about them differently and that that opens us up to new ways of thinking. On the one hand, it's just words. But on the other hand, the words are are the starting point for how we think. And just like in other languages, there are words for concepts that we don't have and that therefore it's hard for us to think about those emotions. I remember the first time I heard the word schadenfreude and I just thought, oh my goodness, that's fantastic. And that's not a word that we have. So we just have to use the German word. And it's meant that I have always felt that once we have a word for something that we can think about it more clearly. And I have not done anything as brave or dramatic as your transition. But I have also gone through a small version of that where I wanted to, you know, get rid of the ingressive behavior. And I realized sort of while I was doing that, that many aspects of my previous life couldn't continue, including my previous job. I just want to share one more thing, if I can, because I've had another light bulb go off that is uh, brighter than all of the other bulbs previously, uh, cumulatively. Wow. Um, because you so talking about having a new word shapes, you know, the, the thoughts that you can have. What I've just now realized is that I've spent pretty much my entire adult life working towards this concept that I just now have the words to describe. So. This is why I have been interested in uh, socialism, because it's, for me, the closest thing I've found to a philosophy and and practice of building congressive organizations. Mm -hmm. And what I've discovered for myself just now is that that's actually the thing that I care about. And Mm -hmm. that socialism is a proxy for that Mm -hmm. for me. It's a proxy for expressing that, you know, in terms of how do we build congressive societies. Mm -hmm. Um, but all of the work that I've done, you know, consulting with teams and organizations and trying to build good teams has been trying to shift teams towards being more congressive so that they work mm-hmm. better together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I've just now realized that what I've been doing my my whole career is that. And now, now I have the word for it. And that's, I'm so happy. That's amazing. And it reminds me of one of the many amazing things that I heard Jessica say at the MPEX conference about how if we think linearly, then we get to a point where we think about blame and 
we blame individuals for things. Whereas, and the way I interpreted it was if we think ingressively, then we think about blame. But if we think congressively, then we see a system as a whole. And then we realize that it's the system that we should be thinking about, not the individuals. And yeah. I think that that's a congressive way of thinking. And, and this is why I've cared so much about mm-hmm. systems thinking. I've made that a focus of my career. This is, I'm going to be thinking about this probably for years. And thank, well, and I think this is what category theory is. It's about thinking about whole systems as units instead of the individual things inside them. And that is what I think about society. And I think that there is an ingressive view, which is that everyone should look after themselves. And there's a congressive view, which is that society is one whole and that we should always be thinking about that whole. I think that's a great place to wrap up. This has been a stunning and transformative conversation. We're actually going to skip reflections because we sort of uh, arrived at consensus via little chat window that we, um, that we have going while we're recording that we need more time. We need to internalize this more and think about this more. So maybe we'll blog our reflections this time around. Eugenia, this has been an amazing conversation. You've really given me tools for thinking about things in a different way that I hadn't thought of before and um, love your perspective. And um, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I think it's been amazing and I have so many things I want to think about as well and hopefully continue the conversation too. 